Grant. I'm Elena. And welcome to History Honeys. The podcast where a married couple teaches each other about cool stuff in the past. Eleventy-one episodes is far too short a time to live among such excellent and admirable listeners. I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. That's kind of mean. Is it? Eh, not really. <laughs> uh, happy birthday, dear. Oh, Despite your confusion, yes, it was your birthday recently. <laughs> well, you know, I'm older now. It's hard to remember things. <laughs> so I thought I'd get you a little present. Yeah. Which is a story about a real heckin' weirdo and some senseless death. Okay, when you said, like, weirdo, I was gonna say you. The death part kind of threw me. Who are we talking about? We are talking about Count Juan Rafael Dante, the deadliest man alive. I feel like he's probably not the deadliest man, and he's probably not alive anymore. Well, things have changed since the 70s, yes. Born John Keehan in 1939, in 1939 Chicago, Count Dante was one of the first American black belts and grew to infamy during his karate career, culminating in the Dojo Wars of the 1970s. Oh boy. Before we get to him, we gotta get to, you know, the context around him, of course. What was the martial arts community like as he grew into it. Probably nuts. He called himself Count. <laughs> uh, American interest in the martial arts started in World War II and, you know, the following occupation. Mm -hmm. uh, essentially, American service members came into contact with locals who could fight real good and said, hey, could you teach me some of that? Like you do. Like you do. One one man who went through exactly that uh, was named Robert Trius. Trius was a boilermaker before he joined the Navy. He learned a, a mix of various techniques while stationed on the Solomon Islands from a, a Buddhist missionary from, uh, from China. Okay. Trius became the first white person to open a karate school in the U.S. Uh, in 1946, and he founded the United States Karate Association in 1948. Oh, that brings us to Mr. John Keehan. He was the son of a bank president in Chicago's Southside Irish neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And he learned his first taste of jujitsu in uh, both the Marine Reserves and his time in the Army. Oh, okay. After leaving the service, he, he studied under Trius directly, among many others, as he, you know, traveled the country. Like uh, you do. And he became the Midwest director of Trius's USKA. Uh, quote, I needed someone in Chicago, and he was young and energetic. That's usually how it goes. <laughs> People who uh, uh, settle down in Phoenix, Arizona, tend to not know a lot of Chicagoans. Is that, like, rare? Is that, like, a thing? There's not a lot of transplants there? And there there are hundreds and hundreds of miles in between, so less Chicagoans than you and I would know. I mean, I guess, but it seems like you would know someone who knows... <laughs> And that guy was John Keehan, okay. kept coming to study at his school. Now, I'm going to say a lot of not nice things about uh, uh, Keehan slash Dante for the rest of the episode. Okay. So it is important to say at the top that he could absolutely fight. Anyone who had a match or saw him fight will say he was not faking that, especially while we're still in the 1960s. Okay. So he was, like, legit. He was legit. Like, he could legitimately punch through a brick. Okay. And he had the broken fingers to prove it. Okay. So by 1964, Kean had opened two dojos in Chicago. You know, 25-year-old small business owner uh, on the west and south sides. It's like Riverdale. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
He was unique among uh, UKSA instructors in that he took on black students. Okay. Yeah, cool. Uh, he had a public split with Trius uh, uh, not long into his career as Midwest director uh, and founded the World Karate Foundation instead in 1964. Uh, is this just because... Why? Why, why, why? why did this happen? Uh, Kean said part of the split was Trius's racial prejudice. Okay, that's what I was wondering. In fact, some of Kean's students were members of the Blackstone Rangers, a huge and, organ- and organized street gang that would eventually become uh, a black nationalist group who were paid by Gaddafi to perform acts of terrorism in the 1980s. Oh! But this is well before that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. While it is true that uh, Kean promoted uh, the second through, I think, tenth uh, uh, black black belts in UKSA history, he was deeply prejudiced against uh, Asian people and their ability to fight. Oh my god. I would share some relevant quotes, but they are not a fit for this program. Big fan of the, the thing. Uh-huh. But not the people who created the thing. Big fan of... Fighting techniques, proven and demonstrated fighting techniques, not a fan of people who are in the culture. We'll, we'll get into it, but the the big thing for Kian was actually knocking people the hell out. Uh-huh. Uh, whereas, like, doing forms, doing katas, doing uh, uh, all, all of the, the more esoteric and less punching people in the jaws part of, of karate and, and all of the other uh, martial arts he was deeply set against. Huh. And, and he saw uh, actual practitioners from Asia and of Asian descent, no matter where they were from, as just being absolutely useless in practical application of butt-kicking techniques. Oh, boy. As for Robert Treese's perspective on their uh, not very amicable split. Uh, he blamed himself for giving Kean quote, too much power, too young, and too fast, and says he expelled him for his fabricated boasting that made the organization look bad. More on that to come. Oh boy. Uh, for what it's worth, the black members of USKA, again, mostly brought in by Kean, stayed with the organization rather than following him to his new World Karate Foundation. Okay. For whatever that means in their individual cases. Uh, Ah. Now, there is a currently active organization called the World Karate Foundation, but that was founded in 1990 and is not associated with John Kean in any way. So it's probably a really important fact to remember. They would really want me to to make that point (laughs) to all of our listeners. We don't want to be sued. (laughs) So now that John Kean is, is flying solo, he's running his own World Karate Foundation, let, let's talk about what that meant for him. He promoted his schools and karate at large through tournaments. Mm-hmm. Tournaments that were sold on spectacle and violence. Ah, yeah. the, the first one he promoted before this split, even, uh, the, the big flyer image was him, like, dropping an elbow through eight cracked bricks. Ooh, Punching through one he could legitimately do. This was fake as heck. Okay. (laughs) He also was a firm, firm believer in full contact stipulations. No pulled punches. No protective gear. Oh, boy. In his final interview, he said, quote, Martial artists are no purer than pro wrestlers. They're pulling their blows. Same thing with sport karate. Oh, goodness. Sport karate is all fake. He just wants people to actually punch each other. Yes. Okay. 
The, the University of Chicago Fieldhouse hosted the first full-contact martial arts tournament in U.S. history in 1963, called the First World Karate Tournament. How original! Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. He was trying out the name before he uh, named his federation that. <laughs> it, it was a Kehan and Trius collaboration, not long before their falling out. Okay. This competition is still held now known as the USKA Grand Nationals. Oh, do they still like full contact oh, no. each other? Oh, no. Okay, I was going to say. The, the legacy of this tournament stuck with Trius. Yeah. And so the rules have changed a lot since then. Yeah. These competitors became some of the best known names in U.S. martial arts competition of the 70s. Uh, and attendees in the stands seeing this became paying customers of Kean's. They're like, I want to learn how to do that. I want to learn how to do that. I'm a local Chicago child. Who is teaching in Chicago? Oh, that guy over there? Heck yeah, sign me up. He will teach me to punch people. (laughs) And so he started promoting tournaments annually, always full contact. And of course, now that they've split, without the support and legitimacy brought by Trius and the USKA. Mm -hmm. Uh, Bruce Lee famously attended one as as a special guest, like Green Hornet era Bruce Lee, like before the films. Uh-huh. Being annual, it also means we have a timeline of pictures of Kian. So so we can chart his meteoric rise from a second-degree black belt to a fifth-degree black belt in a single year. I don't think that's how it works. Very impressive. I, he, had, he had a heck of a year. I don't think it's that's supposed to happen. So uh, uh, Kian's stature in Chicago grew as the only game in town, right? Which in turn deepened this rift with the greater U.S. karate community. And so his eccentricity grew. All, all three of these factors influenced one another and pushed each other farther. And this is when he became Count Dante. What? A, oh my god. <laughs> In 1965, Kean and a friend, Doug Dwyer, got drunk and tried to blow up a rival dojo with a dynamite cap. What the hell? You say that so casually. Like, oh, yeah, <laughs> they had, like, three beers, decided, you know. Well, they didn't succeed. That's good. Uh, because when they, they ran around the corner, the, the weight of the fuse, like, pulled the dynamite cap off the window. They, they didn't tape it securely enough. Oh, my God. And it sort of just fizzled out. All the same, he received two years probation for attempted arson, possession of explosives, and resisting arrest. Two years probation. Oh, it's the 60s, whatever. This incident is part of why he developed a real black eye in the greater karate community, right? Mm-hmm. And so some of his students and followers uh, held a real like grudge against people reporting on this, but not reporting on how he, he was found not guilty and how that's really important. And there's a round table that, that he and a bunch of people had with uh, one of the, the big martial arts magazines at the time. And he had to correct this guy that worked for him. Like, actually, I, I wasn't found not guilty. I, I got probation. Like, oh, because I've been telling a lot of people you were found not guilty. No. <laughs> please, please. Correct yourself and tell them I was guilty. <laughs> he bought a lion cub and walked it around the city on, on a leash. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, technically not against Illinois law at the time. I bet it became soon after. Yeah. Uh, in 1968 or 69, that's when that, that law was passed. I guess because they were like... buy lions. You know, there's this dude walking around with a lion. Maybe that shouldn't be legal. Someone in the Chicago karate community said he saw the lion jump out of a second-story window onto a horse in the street below. Oh my god. 
I do hope that's true. The, the lion was eventually gifted to a local lion's club, who then sold it to a Buick dealer, who then sold it to a second Buick dealer, and the lion eventually lived out its days in a Texas zoo. Oh, thank God. Like, <laughs> what the hell? Yes. Was it common for lion's clubs to own lions? From this sample size, it's statistically more likely for a Buick dealer to own a lion than a lion's club. Okay, why did the Buick dealers want it? <laughs> Around this period in the mid-60s is when uh, uh, Kean started really talking up his past. Like, like uh, his claims that his time in the army included secret missions to Cuba and Mexico, arming, training, and fighting among the, the guerrilla fighters. Oh, he's so full of <laughs> <laughs> He apparently served with Raul Castro, wouldn't you know it? Really? Yeah. Really? Also, his history of competing in secret uh, deathmatch tournaments in the Far East. And he made it out of every single one of them. As champion, being deathmatch tournaments, if he survived, he's clearly the winner. People who would say, you can't enter China, you're an American, it's the the 50s, it's the 60s. Like, no, 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 no. My dad was rich, remember? Uh, I, I bought my way in on a fake passport. And then killed them all with my deadly karate. And they still somehow let me come back. (laughs) Who's going to stop him? He's killing people with deadly karate. Seems like you wouldn't want the deadly karate dude to come back, though. He uh, knocked on Muhammad Ali's door one day to challenge him to a fight. You know, sort of a promotional thing. Like, he really did or he just claims he did? He really did that. Oh, okay. He was not home. That brings us to 1967, a real banner year for for John Keehan. Yeah. Uh, That year's tournament was advertised with a live bull that Dante drove around uh, on an open flatbed truck. He'd be in the back with bull and bullhorn. Why? Well, he he was telling everybody to come down to the Chicago Coliseum to watch one of his students kill the bull with a single blow. What is with the animal abuse? (laughs) So the, the student in question, a, a young kid from Milwaukee, 19 at the time, uh, told the Tribune that if cops shut down the event, he'd kill the bull out on State Street instead. Nobody's going to stop him from killing this bull. <laughs> Again, what is with the animal abuse? Just leave them alone. The demonstration was canceled. Dante did blame the Chicago SPCA, and no harm came to the bull whatsoever. Thank God. The student later realized that that was... Probably the plan all along, and nobody expected him to actually kill a bull with a single blow. Dante claims he won the 1967 tournament and its $10,000 cash prize. Uh Uh-huh. Records show that his student, Vic Rittner, did. Rittner says the actual prize was closer to around $100, all told. And that after how it went, nobody signed up to compete in the 1968 tournament. Oh my god. Other martial arts organizations banned their members from attending this or any tournament organized by the World Karate Federation. Vic Rittner was the best of eight entrants. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Talking about it to a magazine years later, uh, one attendee said, quote, What happened at that tournament wasn't karate. <laughs> Those fighters may have known karate, but they weren't using it. <laughs> So I've been calling him Dante off and on, but for but 1967 is the year when he started using the name Count Juan Rafael Dante. In fact, he, he legally changed his name to Count Juan Rafael Dante. Uh-huh. 
Uh, he claimed he was reclaiming his lost family name uh, and that his family had been Spanish royalty living hidden in exile after the revolution. Of course he did. Dante is not Spanish. No, he's Irish. The name is also not Spanish. Yes. <laughs> like, dude, you're from Beverly. You are the most Southside Irish a dude from Chicago can be. My God. His high school did happen to be on Dante oh Avenue. Oh my God. Coincidence, perhaps? Perhaps. <laughs> Still true, whether or not it's related. But with a new name, you gotta get a new look. Uh, we're talking capes, we're talking canes, canes with a, a lion head. So he became a pimp. Slicked back hair, a beard that clearly inspired Seneca Cranes in the Hunger Games film. You did show me a picture. Yes, very I did. True. It's very true. <laughs> Seneca's look better, but yes. He also got into cosmetology, opening a salon called House of Dante in West Town. That doesn't sound like a salon. <laughs> what does it sound like, dear? An adult entertainment house. Oh, oh no, that's after the break. We're going to talk about oh, that. Oh, really? Now, people close to him tended to either believe he was the deadliest man to ever live, or called him a psychopath and got out of his orbit as quickly as they could. Those are probably the smart people. But people who didn't know him that closely tended to love him, because he's a colorful guy, nice to kids, always had cool stories, who cares if they're true? Who's not going to love the guy walking around a tame lion cub around West Town with, with the fishnet leotard? A fishnet leotard mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with a cape and a cane. And a lion. And a lion. Oh, my God. Telling you about the, the time he, he grabbed a guy by the throat and twisted, uh, uh, just breaking his larynx. He's too much. He's he too is much. too much. Count Dante is too much for Chicago alone. The world needed Count Dante. Of course they did. He is most known for his ad placed in comic books of the 60s and 70s, promising to teach his secrets to any reader who mailed in the fee. Did, did he, like, start that? Did he, like, start in the mail-in advertising stuff of, like, send me $49.95 plus shipping and handling and I'll give you a video? He may have been the start. He was absolutely, undoubtedly in the first wave. Okay. He, here is uh, the, the classic ad copy for one of the, the versions of the Count Dante ad. Yes, this is the deadliest and most terrifying fighting art known to man. Known to man and without equal. It's maiming, mutilating, disfiguring, paralyzing, and crippling techniques are known only by a few people in the world. An expert at Dimak could easily kill many judo, karate, kung fu, aikido, and gung fu experts at one time with only fingertip pressure using his murderous poison hand weapons. Murderers poison hand weapons. Mm -hmm. Instructing you step by step through each move in this manual is none other than Count Dante, the deadliest man who ever lived. The crown prince of death. <laughs> this was a full page ad, by the way. The top half was a, an image of Dante squinting with his hands clenched and perfectly shaped hair. Look at his little fingertip pressure using murderous poison hand weapons. The, the pose... It, combined with the printing, kind of made him look like Steven Seagal. Of course it did. In other photographs, uh, uh, especially those later in the 70s, he looks a lot more like Danny McBride, people have said. <laughs> yeah. And they're not wrong. Yeah. To get this pamphlet. I love that's a pamphlet. To get the world's deadliest fighting secrets, you had to mail in $5. 
which is around $40 in today's buying power. So I was not really wrong about the $39.95 plus shipping and handling. Incredibly accurate, actually. Unlike many comic book ads of the time, this was not entirely a scam. You would get a 72-page pamphlet oh full of fighting techniques. That's that's not a pamphlet. That's a book. <laughs> a, you got a book. A slim book. Yes. I'm thinking like a pamphlet, pamphlet like a takeaway menu that you like. <laughs> it's like a four-folded thing, not 72 <laughs> pages. That's actually a deal. <laughs> Of course, it began with his own uh, aggrandizing biography and portrait. Uh, the, the bio laid out his uh, place in European nobility, the 1,000 tournament trophies held by him and his students, uh, the long, long list of disciples he had mastered, uh -huh. etc. Uh, the etc. includes his classical singing skills. Oh my god. It's important to note that. Really? Then, then we get blurbs for both the World Karate Federation and the Black Dragon Fighting Society. Oh, uh, is this real? This is the the dojo that that he founded. The family oh. of dojos. All of his schools comprised the Black Dragon Fighting Society. Okay. Also, before you get to the good stuff, there's a publisher's note. Quote, we have made available to you the deadliest book ever written. I'm glad they acknowledge it's a book and not a pamphlet. I'm going to keep calling it a pamphlet. <laughs> uh, then comes a list of shortcomings in present-day defense systems, culminating in his assertion that most karate schools don't teach effective fighting techniques. Again, he's, he's a full-contact guy. He wants to see blood. He wants to see teeth knocked out. It's not a real fighting art unless you can go somewhere and beat someone up with it. He's not totally wrong about that. <laughs> like... This attitude, even more than, you know, his flamboyance, shall we say, is, is what really made him uh, um, an enemy of the karate establishment because they, they didn't want that association. The, the prevailing belief was that, yes, of course, if we do these techniques with full intent to kill, we are dangerous, murderous people, or, or at least that's what we have the capability to be. And, you know, the cops are going to crack down on us. Ah, that's scary. That's the worst case scenario. And other people who are saying, if, if uh, all of our big events and tournaments are just like bloodying people and, and breaking everybody's nose, we're going to attract an unwelcome element that we don't want to be associated with. This is bad optics. Yeah. So there's, there's two strikes against him in the mainstream, even if you may see where he's coming from. I mean, with the like, yeah, you want to kick someone's ass. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you can't actually kick someone's ass, it's not worth learning or teaching. That is the Count Dante way. It's probably a little too hard about it, because I bet they all could kick ass. <laughs> it's just they're not actively, like, doing that every mm -hmm, day. Mm -hmm. People were right, though, that it led to a certain uh, um, atmosphere, a certain culture in his schools. <laughs> One of the schools uh, following in his tradition had a beer cooler for students. And when asked about it, one of them said, quote, This is the condition most of us are going to be in if we get in any beefs. And we want to be accustomed to it. Oh, my God. <laughs> so they'd all just, you know, have a few cold ones in the middle of uh, do doing their exercises. Like you do. Yeah. I, I haven't mentioned it, but th his system, once people insisted, come on, come on, Dante, you have to name it. It has to have a name. He eventually relented and called it the Dante system with, with a hyphen in there. Dude. <laughs> and, and the Dante system is the only martial art I'm aware of that has 
two separate moves that are specifically for when your opponent is sitting in a, is sitting on a bar stool. This dude. <laughs> it's just so much. So so back to the book. It's time for the good stuff. Uh, the good stuff begins with charts of the 50 plus vital areas of the body. Like vital for punching? Vi- yes. Yes. Okay. The vulnerable points. Okay. And Didn't quite know there were so many. And then a chart of which points were most vulnerable to dim mock the killing touch, depending on the time of day. Depending on the time of day. Yeah, there are 24 of them, one for each hour. Because only that hour, it's good. So, oh, excuse me, let me check my watch. Oh, you know what? We got to wait 30 seconds because then the other one will be good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm wondering if uh, perhaps like jet lag uh, could be a great defense against dim mock because your, your body's internal clock isn't quite lined up with oh. the local clock. Did he think about this? Did he write a blurb about it? I don't know. I don't think anyone has. While we're talking what about What if it, you're standing on like... Where where time changes? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What if you're on a time zone? Do you have to convert for daylight savings? And what about if you're like in that town where like they don't do daylight savings, but like you live where daylight savings happens? So how does that affect? While we're talking about it, dear, are you familiar with dim mock the concept? No. This is part of shall we say martial arts lore. <laughs> Okay, I didn't learn this when I did karate. <laughs> That's good, because dim mock is the idea of, of a single strike to, to a pressure point or something similar that induces death, either immediately or perhaps a few days later. With, with a single blow, a, a single touch, a practitioner can kill you. Uh-huh. Th- this is why it's uh, uh, so dependent, perhaps, on, you know, the, the body's internal rhythms and spiritual uh, uh, cycles. And why you put it in a $5 pamphlet. <laughs> hey, that's $40 in 2020 money. It's 72 pages, though, so like, mm. uh, so So after those charts, we get many, many pages of actual fighting techniques, all with photo reference. Okay, this is a really great deal. It has yeah. photo printing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, come on. Most of these techniques are just dirty fighting, which... Is effective. I'm glad it's dirty fighting because I totally read fighting as fingering for a second. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh. But I don't think you need to pay an expert a month's allowance or more to just learn, go for the eyes, go for the groin. Well, and that's why I was like, why are there 50 plus vital areas? Like eyes, throat, groin. What more do you really need? <laughs> Once they go down, keep hitting them. That's a big thing that this book uh, uh, teaches you. That's when you move to the fourth area, the <laughs> stomach. The, the final pages are a guide to brick breaking. Of course it is. Uh, the trick as to like, okay, you set a brick down on a hard surface, you know, wind up with your striking hand, you, you hold it with your other hand. Striking hand comes down and in the last split second, you angle the brick up with the holding hand so that as your striking hand impacts it, there's room for it to go. There's room for it to snap to. That is the trick that, that you can be taught by Count Dante. I just saved you $5 in 1960s money. Don't punch bricks. <laughs> it's not going to end well for you. The back cover is one last image of Dante showing off a hairstyle he did for one of the bunnies of the Chicago Playboy Club. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> He's just gesturing at this seated woman like a Price is Right model. This dude! Now, once you have the the pamphlet, excuse me, the book, you could also become a member of the Black Dragon Fighting Society. 
You just pay the membership fee and mail in the form telling them what color belt the certificate should say you have. Wait, what? You just tell them? You just tell them, and they give you a certificate saying that you are a such-and-such belt. You Did anyone not just automatically say black belt? <laughs> hey, hey, it's an honor system. It's a very honorable system. There was also a lot of Black Dragon Fighting Society merch you can get. This continues to this day. If you want to join the Black Dragon Fighting Society, you can. And you can buy jackets and patches and, and all sorts of oh things. Oh my god. And you just tell them what color your belt should be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So we're going to take a quick break. Do that, because I want to be an official uh, recognized black belt. That sounds like fun. And be back with more on the life and times of Count Juan Rafael Dante. Wow. Welcome back, everybody. Hello! We, we've just discussed perhaps Count Dante's biggest claim to fame, his mail order instruction and the ad for it. Yep. If he's more famous for anything than that, it would be the deadliest and most violent day of the Dojo Wars, April 24th, 1970. Oh, oh no. Nobody's accounts of this event match. Of course they don't. I shall endeavor to do my best. Yeah. So, Count Dante had an issue with the Green Dragon Society and intended to go to their Black Cobra Hall dojo and beat up their instructors. Of course he did. This was a time-honored tradition in martial arts history, especially among the, the more self-important and violent instructors. Oh, really? Like Count Dante. Usually, it just amounts to uh, uh, having some tense words, uh, an issue is challenged, and then someone says, ah, it's not worth going to jail for you, but you know what I think. Uh-huh. As you might guess from me introducing this as a, a violent and deadly incident, it did not stop there. Oh, no. Now, Dante said that, that this was in response to death threats he had been receiving, he had been receiving from their students. Uh, one of his friends thought it was about a girl. <laughs> One green dragon said Dante was extorting the dojo, a sort of a instructor in Chicago fee, right? You're on my territory, so pay up or we'll come smash the place. Uh-huh. For whatever reason, he was going to, to share some words and, and a flurry of fists on April 24th. So he called up some friends and students to come along with. Mm-hmm. First was Jimmy Konsevich, a, a known street brawler who would mess you up. <laughs> he had a dojo of his own. Uh, Ken Nudson, uh, a guy who turned down the call to join, uh, said, quote, He was notorious. He was legendary for getting into street fights, just mauling people. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, there, there's a 1969 or 1970 tournament mm -hmm. uh, that was not held by Dante. It was held by a guy trying to rescue Chicago's reputation from Dante. Uh-huh. That both Nudson and Konsevich uh, competed in. Konsevich won, and the account of how he just tore apart, like, these people from, like, the East Coast and West Coast. It was a big, like, all the American regions come and, and join together in this uh, Chicago warehouse mm -hmm. event. <laughs> Konsevich just destroyed them. Got a lot of warnings from the, the referees, though. Oh, boy. Next to actually join was Michael Felkov, who Dante described as, quote, an animal as a fighter with a killer instinct. 
Oh, good. Felkoff says he was called in as a mediator. He was a guy who both schools would trust and respect uh, to, to, you know, give them both a fair shake in this dispute, whatever the dispute was about. Kinsevich, as an instructor, brought three of his own students. Dante, upon seeing them, was not very happy about this. Oh, no? He thought they were a bunch of little wimpos. <laughs> oh. Uh, they still got to come, though. He, he wasn't turning them away. Like, I don't have to like you for you to get beat up. <laughs> the Chicago Tribune says Kean broke down the door. The legal account of events said he used a fake badge to impersonate a deputy sheriff uh, to be let inside. Oh. Felkoff says he just knocked and they opened the door for him. It's a lot of differences of opinion. There were between four and 17 Green Dragon Society <laughs> members waiting. Four to 17. You know, I didn't really get a great look. I'm doing my best. <laughs> they were armed and waiting with, quote, Chinese weapons taken down from the walls. Or maybe they were still on the walls and they came down later. <laughs> I just, I just love so much that these guys are calling themselves like the, the Black Dragon Fighting Society and like the Black Cobra Hall. When you look at these materials, when you come through like industry news and, and magazine articles from the 60s, the word oriental is in every other sentence and, and like all this like these claims to mysticism and dim mock. And there's there's dudes named Konsevich. <laughs> and, you know, they all have the most, like, South Side Chicago accents. Uh, after we do this, this karate, I'm going to go uh, get a sausage. <laughs> went, to, went to the Bulls game, and then, then I did my katas. <laughs> yep. Uh, so Green Dragon instructor Jose Gonzalez... <laughs> That's the name of a lot of baseball players. But I mean, like, one of Chicago's baseball players. Uh, I mean, there's Jose Abreu. I don't think he plays for the Sox anymore. Okay, maybe there was a Gonzalez with a different first name. So I'm thinking, <laughs> combining them. Maybe. It's uh, been a, I haven't been to a baseball game in a few years. It's been a while. I would hope everybody well, hasn't I been. I mean, <laughs> it was a while before COVID. That's true. That's true. Uh, so, uh, Instructor Gonzalez was struck in the eye with a nunchuck and required surgery for his lacerated uh, cornea. I mean, I guess it's good that that's all he had that had happened from a nunchuck. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, uh, one source says it was uh, one of Konsevich's young students. Another source, Black Belt Magazine, says Dante is the one who uh, sent him to the hospital. I was hoping it would be he accidentally hit himself. <laughs> Now, according to, to Dante, he says he dropped every instructor they had waiting one by one. Very, very Jackie Chan of him. Of course. Now, Konsevich did what he was brought to do, beat people up. Like you do. He, he leapt onto the back of another green dragon, Jerome Greenwald, who then responded by stabbing him with a sword. Yeah, stab him with that sword. This is the moment things turned. <laughs> Uh, Dante yelled for everyone to stop. Konsevich yelled for everyone to get the fuck out. <laughs> Black Belt Magazine claims that Konsevich ended the day with 37 total wounds of varying severity. Oh my god! In clearing, including a spear through his throat. What? <laughs> I will say they have one of the most sensational uh, reports uh, on the events. Uh, Konsevich made it a few feet out of the door before collapsing. Uh, and, and died almost immediately at age 26. Jerome Greenwald, uh, the, the student that stabbed him, 
uh, was charged with murder and held on $250 bond, age 20. Count Dante, age 31, was initially charged with aggravated battery and impersonating a police officer and was held on $15,000 bond. What? I mean, not that I'm upset that they held him with that, mm-hmm. but the one who did the stabbing, it was $250. I have to imagine the scale was in part set on their ability to pay. <laughs> it's just a little yeah. interesting. <laughs> it is interesting. Let's call it interesting. <laughs> Cash bail is a bad system, and I'm glad we're moving to abolish it. Yes. Uh, now, in, in one account, the, the cops found Dante hiding beneath a desk in the instructor's office. Of course he was. His followers do not dispute that. They, in, they instead say, well, yeah, where else are you going to put him? There were like 30 guys trying to kill this guy. <laughs> the number seems to go up the, the more years that pass. Yeah, you know. And the more generations of students you get from Dante himself. It's kind of like the tomato wars. <laughs> Dante managed to get himself a mob lawyer, Bob Cooley. Of course he did. Who wrote a lot about him in his memoir. Of course he did. When they first met, Dante was wearing a yellow fishnet leotard and a purple cape. What is with these fishnet leotards? Those cannot be comfy. The state was charging him under the accountability statute. Essentially, he was responsible for the murder because he put everybody in the situation where the murder occurred. Yeah, that's true. He did. Uh, all Cooley and Dante had to do was demonstrate there was no way to anticipate it would become a deadly sword fight. <laughs> the judge dismissed all charges, shouting, You're each as guilty as the other. <laughs> it was that thing you only think happens in movies where a judge just throws up his hands and says, I don't want to deal with this. Get out of my courtroom. <laughs> Now, Dante claims he spent his entire fortune up to that point getting his students out of legal trouble, right? Everybody's bail, everybody's lawyers, getting everybody off. I bet that's bullshit. Even paying some judges, I'm sure. Uh, And that he got a job selling peanuts at one of the baseball stadiums. I was very curious. He did not say which baseball stadium. The East Side Chicago one. (laughs) The very wet baseball stadium. Uh Uh-huh. They also do water polo. The very wet and real Eastside baseball stadium. If there was any hope of Count Dante ever repairing his reputation in the greater community, it was gone now. So there was nothing left to hold him from going even further into his bizarre behavior. Most of these specific accounts of uh, uh, Count Dante's life in the 70s come from Bob Cooley's book. He kept needing that lawyer. (laughs) Uh, After the trial, he gave a a public vow to never give in to a challenge to a fight. No matter who comes up, he's just going to let it pass, you know. Uh, His vow was part of an article he wrote for Official Karate Magazine, uh, which was advertised on that issue's cover as, quote, Karate is for sissies, says Count Dante. Now, th- this vow didn't last very long, uh, uh, as he kept getting into bar fights with people wisecracking about his leotards and the big Spanish coat of arms on his Cadillac. You know, I, I can't blame the people. The 70s was a time of many cultures. <laughs> what is his culture? <laughs> Spanish nobility. Oh, okay. He ran Spain. He ran it. <laughs> the country. Spain! Spain! Maybe she was a little confused and she was dating Count Dante. (gasps) Maybe that was it. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Dante punching people, he once once punched his lawyer, Cooley, and then, as like an apology, he offered to demonstrate a bullet catch. (laughs) Oh my god! 
Like again, uh, try try to imagine a more '70s scene than a dude with an afro, a beard sculpted into ocean waves, <laughs> fishnet leotard, and a cape, com- coming up and saying, "Hey, hey, shoot me with your gun, because it'll be cool." <laughs> now, following Bruce Lee's unfortunate death, Dante saw an opening in Hollywood that he could fill, and he went for a screen test. Did he know? I mean, a lot of the studios saw the exact same opening. Uh, uh, the, the posthumous release of Enter the Dragon was a massive, massive hit, mm-hmm. especially as a multiple of its budget. Yeah. So according to his students, they couldn't use him in the movies because he was too fast for the film to capture his movements. Oh my god. Also, he refused to pull his punches. <laughs> This was his style of fighting, after all. And he injured too many stunt performers. Well, they they really don't like it when you actually do punch them. The film would be uninsurable. Just far too expensive, because he just kept actually hurting people. Stop actually hurting people. <laughs> now, if you look at footage that survives of him in the 70s, uh, a, a, another picture emerges. His fighting was really bad on camera. Just awful. Just the worst. Like, you, you look at these films that did come from Hong Kong and Hong Kong trained performers. The fighting looks real cool. Yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> and real or not, Count, Count Dante is just like, just punching a guy. Punch. And then sort of walking in a circle around him and hitting him again. Not exactly fun. The mob connections through Cooley led Dante into new business ventures. A car lot. A chain of adult bookstores. Oh boy. Uh, Cooley had to bail him out uh, in 1974 by paying Jimmy the Bomber uh, Cachuara $25,000. What did he do that he needed that? You know, territorial disputes. Oh, okay. Jimmy the Bomber got his start by bombing taxis in the taxi wars of the 20s and 30s. Wait, what? Taxi wars? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Is that a future episode? Perhaps. We'll let it rest here by saying that uh, the Chicago outfit, the, the various Chicago outfits, both the one named the outfit and others, ha- had their hand in a lot of businesses, including taxis. Okay. Now, by the 70s, uh, Jimmy was head of the Chicago Heights branch of the outfit and waging the Chop Shop Wars Oh, with a a rival uh, uh, leader within the the big umbrella. Honestly, I didn't know we had so many wars. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Dante's mob ties led to his questioning in relation to the Perlater security heist. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, This occurred in 1974 when $4.3 million in cash was stolen from the Perlater vault. Uh Uh-huh. That's over 1,000 pounds of cash. The largest cash heist in U.S. history, at least at the time. Uh Uh-huh. There is no sign of forced entry, so probably an inside job. It was only discovered uh, by the firefighters who were called in when people noticed smoke escaping the vault. Uh-huh. There was a fire set likely meant to destroy any evidence lying behind. Most of the accomplices were eventually found. This is considered a mostly solved case. Mostly. $1.2 million were left unrecovered. Uh-huh. Uh, Dante and Jimmy the Bomber, in fact, faced the grand jury together, called on the same day. Neither were officially connected to the crime, although Cooley's book says that Dante really was involved somehow. 
Mm-hmm. A few months before he died, Dante applied to Moody Bible Institute to become a minister. Oh my god! His application was rejected. <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't quite want him. He claimed to have killed over 50 people, <laughs> half of that in his military career, the other half both in street fights and in his deathmatch competitions. Uh-huh. Quote, I've blown away a lot of people that were supposed to be prisoners. Just wasted them. That's part of war. Yeah, and that's, you know, who you want as a minister <laughs> he, from your he Bible was, Institute. He was rejected. They didn't take him. I know. I'm just like... <laughs> Uh, as a reminder, Dante, back in his John Keehan days, uh, he, he served in the Marine Reserves and the Army in the, the late 50s, the very early 60s, when the U.S. was not involved in a major conflict. Uh-huh. <laughs> Though he was allegedly doing all this guerrilla stuff with, with Raul Castro. Yes, yes. Count Dante's final tournament was in 1975 in Taunton, Massachusetts, organized by his closest student and eventual heir, William Aguiar Jr. Uh-huh. He apparently looked like, quote, trash. <laughs> Two fighters walked up to, to his you know, seat at the judge's table and challenged him. He never left the judge's table. <laughs> he was known uh, at this time to be mixing alcohol and painkillers. Well, you know, I gotta have a fun time. Uh, and told a reporter while promoting, like in the promo for this event, uh, quote, I want people to forget me. Oh, someone had a turn. It's a very uncharacteristic quote from Juan Dante Raphael. Yeah. A major retrospective of his life was in the works. Uh, a, a big three-part article uh, uh, published in Black Belt Magazine, uh, who he had a great rivalry with. Mm-hmm. Uh, he developed a habit of calling the interviewer in the night, talking about his paranoia as he sat with a shotgun across his lap. Oh my god. He is the most 70s man to ever live. (laughs) Martin Scorsese wishes he made a story about (laughs) Count Dante. He still has time. He's got time. Would it be played by Leonardo DiCaprio? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, please let it be played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Or what's his name that does method acting? (laughs) Daniel Day-Lewis. I want him to method act this shit. Oh my god, cause that that guy. I I would like to see him in a in a gold leotard, yeah. Right? I just walking around like this is what he does. Cause that man lives as his characters. He is like It would be worth it for the Chicago Reader article about him getting arrested for walking a line club <laughs> line cub in West Town. Block Club Chicago would just like uh, permanently assign one of their reporters to like follow him. <laughs> Count Juan Rafael Dante died in his home, May 25th, 1975, of bleeding stomach ulcers. Oh. Some say he was poisoned by the mob for bringing too much attention. No, he wasn't. I I mean, he was an attention-grabbing guy. Others say he was killed by another dim mock master for leaking their secrets. Is, like, the stomach one of the 50-plus things? (laughs) Do you get stomach ulcers from that? Some say he never died and claim to have seen him around in the old neighborhoods. He's Elvis. The Black Dragon Fighting Society and the Dante system were both inherited by one of his students, the previously mentioned William Aguiar, and now belong to his son, William Aguiar III. Uh-huh. The name is also used by known martial arts frauds, Ashita Kim, and occasionally Frank Ducks. Uh-huh. 
So, so all of your mail order ninjas, your no touch knockout artists, all kinds of fake martial arts hooey owe themselves to John Guillen and the Dante method, even the ones that do not claim him in their legacy. Oh my gosh. On the other hand, his full contact cross-discipline tournaments were precursors to the UFC. Uh, uh, this 1975 match where he looks like, quote, trash, uh, is often called the, the route from which uh, UFC grew. Uh-huh. I mean, that is a money machine in its own right, much in, in the Dante mold. But true. one where the fights are clearly real. No one disputes that. Yeah, yeah. I think it is amazing that his two biggest legacies are the, these absolute frauds and the number one way for revealing these absolute frauds, an actual fight against someone who wants to hurt them. Yeah. So before we leave, let's, let's, have, let's have him speak in his own words, some quotes from Count Dante. 90% of what I've told you on Tape It Off is bullshit, and I'm the only one that knows which 10% is the truth. Oh my god. Uh, and also, quote, Musashi is the hero of Japan, yet he murdered innocent men, women, and children for money. He was a stone killer. They despised him when he was alive and canonized him in the arts after he was dead. Mark my words, that's what they'll do to me. So, darling, what have you learned? <laughs> it's a big question. It's a big question. I've learned that I uh, need someone to pitch this to Martin Scorsese, first yeah, off. yeah. Call up your buddy Leo. Nicholas Winding Refn would make a hell of a Count Dante movie, honestly. Oh. Can we just get the guy that played Seneca Crane to do it? <laughs> He's got the right look, and he knows how to have that beard. I mean, the I think the most amazing thing is that Dante at his height was like 27, you know? Okay, who young can play him? <laughs> who do we got? Tom Holland is oh Count Dante. Oh my god! KJ Appa could do it. Why not? I don't know if I want him to, like, be semi-attractive. <laughs> um, I learned that this this time frame in Chicago was a very interesting time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, th- this is parallel to so many things. Like, he is holding his tournaments at the same time up the road, like the, the 68 Democratic Convention is turning into a police riot. Yeah, like, well, like Ma- Mayor Daly is ruling from from a, a, a crossed iron throne while while he is just while he's walking a lion cub around. Like the Colosseum's mentioned. Like, mm-hmm, oh my god, mm-hmm. his skills go all the way back to a Buddhist a, a Buddhist missionary on the Solomon Islands, right? So, yes, and the Colosseum is now the site of a Buddhist center. Yes, I just keep thinking about his followers. Yes. That needs to be a documentary. Count Dante, or rather the Black Dragon Fighting Society, still has adherents. They still have schools. And William Aguiar is a very litigious man. He jealously, notoriously, and often with no legal standing, defends the, the copyrights and, and uh, uh, intellectual property of the Dante system and their logos and, and everything. And there are people who study in these schools and very vociferously believe that, yeah, he was the deadliest man alive. Sure, sure, he, he might have, uh, you know, talked himself up a bit. He was a salesman, he was a showman, but that doesn't mean he couldn't kill people with his bare hands and did many times. It's just so much. It's so much. It's so much. 
this just shows you that when you are going to do something, you should re- do your proper research to find out if the person's a crazy butt. <laughs> what what I learned uh, uh, researching this is like, for a while I'm thinking, this is a man who belongs in the 1800s as we <laughs> describe them. But then as it goes on, like, no, the 1970s were a little pocket of the 1800s come back again. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's what I learned. You know, there's not much difference between uh, people going around cyaniding each other and mm-hmm. walking around in fishnet leotards with a lion. Very <laughs> much go together. He was working with kids on the South Side the same time as Fred Hampton. And that movie's up for an Oscar. Where's the Count Dante movie? <laughs> See, that's why they really need to get someone in their 20s to play him. Because <laughs> while that movie was great... Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Little insane when you start to think about how old they're supposed to actually be. Lakeith Stanfield's playing a 19-year-old? What? (laughs) With that, we're going to take another quick break and be back with letters. Welcome back, everybody. Hello. As promised, we have letters. Our first letter is from Peter, who is asking our recent prompt. Asking our recent prompt? Who is answering our recent prompt. Uh, (laughs) I wanted to hear everybody's favorite martial artist. Yes. Peter gives two uh, responses. First, Jackie Chan, but but coming out on top is Michelle Yeoh. Uh, most famous for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, but uh, she has quite a filmography of her of her own. Uh, Peter recommends Yes, Madam from the the uh, uh, mid '80s. Peter also says some very kind things about Bizarre Podcast Dogs Must Die, the new uh, podcast that I launched with with a friend of mine, where we're watching JoJo's Bizarre Adventure together. Uh, if you check that out now, you'll be able to hear uh, our full four-episode arc regarding the, the first part, uh, the, the first bizarre adventure. We, we just put out uh, episode four, which is a sort of recap and, and discussion uh, with a very special guest that, that we had a whole lot of fun talking about. So thanks for listening, Peter. Uh, Cameron writes in for the first time. Hi, Cameron. Cameron also answers the latest prompt of favorite martial artist, and that is Bruce Lee. Uh, they also share that their favorite martial arts, not person, but like arts, is uh, <laughs> Hungar, which is the inspiration for the earthbending style in Avatar The Last Airbender. You should watch that. I think you'd like it a lot. Yeah. 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 Some other prompts, uh, going quickly, because they answered a lot of them. Uh, Favorite ship, uh, there are two, the USS Indianapolis and the USS Constitution. Mm -hmm. Uh, Favorite assassin is the fictional assassin named Mother Gullet. That's from Warhammer, baby. Okay. Favorite military director is Julius Caesar. Favorite pirate is Anne Bonny. Favorite serial killer is Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, and favorite train is the fictional Dreadnought train from the Clockwork Century series book named after the train. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Cameron says some very nice things about listening to our podcast oh, and found you. us after Gexter Life. I think ah. that's how some other of our listeners also found us mm-hmm. uh, and also shares some lovely pictures of some very, very cute doggies. Oh, named they were so good. Leo, Sophie and Shadow. I am in love with Leo, Sophie, and Shadow. They're very cute. Thanks, Cameron. Thanks. 
Kristen writes in with a, a couple prompts to answer of their own. Uh, their favorite martial artist is Yasuke, the African samurai, uh, a retainer under, Odu no, under Oda Nobunaga. And, and yes, sword fighting counts as a martial art. There you go. <laughs> While Kristen's favorite monk is the Buddhist monk in South Vietnam who, who set himself on fire to, to protest the war. So I will do my best to pronounce Thich Quang Duc. That's probably a million miles wrong. Good try. And while Kristen does not have a favorite Valentine's candy, they do want to share their favorite Valentine's trivia. In Japan, due to a translation error, Valentine's Day uh, became a day where women give men chocolate. And in response, White Day was created on your birthday, the 14th, uh, where men give women white chocolate or a marshmallow treat in response. We could... We could celebrate that. Yeah. We could add a whole nother thing to my birthday. Why not? It's we great. We got Pi Day. We had Daylight Savings this time. <laughs> Let's just keep going. Thanks, Kristen. Pedro also writes in for the first time. Oh, wonderful. We're just filled, we got a lot of like first time writers this time. Yeah. Uh, Pedro started listening to us in November when trying to find a podcast to introduce their girlfriend to. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's exciting. Thanks yeah. for uh, finding us. That's a twofer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, their favorite martial artist is Gordon Liu, uh, who is the star of movies like... 36 Chamber of Shaolin and Heroes of the East, but is also, was also in Kill Bill. Yeah, he, he played Pai Mei. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Pedro. Michael writes in, I, th I believe this is the first time we're hearing from Michael as well. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Uh, Michael starts with a list of some of their favorite episodes. Oh, that's, that's very nice to hear. Thank you. And their favorite uh, martial artist is the suit actor for Kamen Rider Kuga, which is... An unexpected response, but a very interesting one. I like the way you think. Uh, but they, they have a whole list of prompts they'd like to catch up on, including four favorite superheroes, Ultraman Taiga, Kamen Rider Kuga again, uh, the, the Toa of Lego Bionicle, and for a more mainstream answer, Spider-Man. Spider-Man! <laughs> Spider-Man! Michael also leaves us with a show suggestion and a, a mention of, of their two cats, Misty and Bebop, resting too peacefully to disturb uh, with, with photography. <laughs> I like Bebop. Bebop is a good name, and I'm sure Bebop and Misty are both very good cats. Yes. Thanks, Michael. Uh, Isaac also writes in and answers three prompts. Ooh. Uh, favorite monk is Sabin from Final Fantasy mm -hmm. or Gregor Mendel, also from Final Fantasy? <laughs> What's that from? History. History. He discovered inherited genetics. Oh. In fact, somebody on the last episode answered Gregor Mendel. I don't remember. We talked about Punit Squares? I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> it's been a few weeks. Favorite Valentine's candy is Twin Bings. Oh, they don't make those here. I don't know what that I is. I don't know what that is. Google that. Tell me what that is. Cherry flavored nugget. Coated in chopped peanuts and chocolate. You know, that sounds good. That sounds it, pretty good. It doesn't really look good, but it sounds good. One of Sioux City's quintessential treats. Huh. Well, it hasn't made its way to Illinois, uh, as far as I know. But it looks good. Favorite martial artist is Doug Marqueda, the edged weapons expert on Forged in Fire. Have you seen that show? No. It's something. <laughs> Most of what was shared in these letters, I don't know what anyone's talking about. 
it, it, it's a reality competition show where people yeah. make knives and things. Usually when I don't know what people are talking about, I assume it's from a video game. Oh, okay. Every time I'm like, is that from Final Fantasy? <laughs> like Gregor Mendel? Because everything's from Final Fantasy. There's like 50 of them now. Thanks, Isaac. There's like seven. I know that, right? Am I right? <laughs> I don't know. So this is the part of the show where we give you homework. Uh, <laughs> so if you would like to, to send us a letter like all these fine people, including three first-timers, pretty sure... Where can those go, dear? Those can go at historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. That's where we want to hear your show suggestions, like Michael, your, your correction. Or Pedro. Or Pedro, Pedro that's right. Pedro gave us some. Uh, or or your, your questions, any stories you might want to share, and also responses to our usual prompts. Uh, so our prompt for next time is, what is your favorite movie from the 1970s? And again, those can go to historyhoneyspodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also follow us on social media yeah. at History Honeys. We are on Facebook, Twitter, mm-hmm. and Instagram mm-hmm. sometimes. You can also <laughs> give us a rating and review on, on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else that gives you the option. We do appreciate that little sprinkle of algorithm magic. You can also tell a friend. Yes, that's where the real magic is. And those friends. <laughs> Perhaps the real History Honeys were the friends we made along the way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so with that... I'm Grant. I'm Lena. And history's better with with your honey. honey.